Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. Yes, so I will start by introducing our speakers. So first we have Bronya Lipsky. Um, Bronya is a lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia, or EJA, um, also known as Nature's Legal Team. She has extensive experience with the team at EJA and is passionate about keeping our government in check through different mechanisms, including public advocacy as well as litigation. Um, we also have Dr. Michelle Maloney, the co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. Michelle's expertise is wide-ranging and cross-discipline. She is particularly recognised for her expert expertise in earth laws, having created Australia's first university-level course on earth laws in 2016. And lastly, we have Dr. Keely Boom, who is the Executive Officer of the Climate Justice Program. The CJP is a non-government organisation that uses the law to expose environmental and human rights issues that result from climate change. Keely is an Arabical Arabical woman who grew up in the UN nation. She has completed a PhD in international climate change law. So thank you all for being here today and thank you to all our participants. Um, so firstly, uh, I thought we could start by each of you giving us a quick overview of your career in environmental law to date um, and tell us what it is that inspired you to pursue a career in this field. So maybe Branya, if you wanna go first. Sure, we'd love to. Um, my journey here hasn't been very straightforward. Um, I actually completed my law degree um, as a mature age student, so I have um, not been practicing law um, for my entire adult life. I've been doing a range of other things, but mostly in the advocacy space in some kind of way. So um, I did some youth work um, with really high risk adolescents and high risk curry uh, kids in Victoria. Um, and did some film and TV stuff and it's all a bit of a hodgepodge to be honest but I always had my foot somewhere in the uh, environmental campaigning and activist space. Um, when I made the decision to go to law school I was also I was deeply involved at the time with the anti-onshore gas extraction movement in Victoria um, where I worked with a few of the lawyers at um, what was then the EDO Victoria, um, now we're EJA, um, and was learning about the ways that we could utilise the law um, to bolster campaigns and activism um, in the environmental space. And by that stage, I um, was completely hooked. I ended up moving to northern New South Wales where I did my law degree at Southern Cross University um, and, again, found myself in the thick of the anti-onshore gas movement up there as a law student um, where we were... We campaigned um, just out of Lismore to prevent onshore gas extraction um, at a little area called Bentley and were successful. Um, and whilst there, I was um, working with, I was volunteering with the EDO in New South Wales, who had an office in Lismore at the time, um, and eventually found my way into um, political campaigning at the same time. So I was full-time law school volunteering at EDO, running a, was a campaign coordinator for a, um, for a political candidate up there who only lost by 2,000 postal votes um, and was, had just completely threw myself into public interest in the public interest environmental um, space. Um, and then not long after I completed my graduate diploma of legal practice, the job that I have came up. So I was a little bit nervous that I had completely... Um, pigeonholed myself into a particular area um, because I was hell-bent on practicing public interest environmental law um, and that maybe I had, yeah, had, I had a whole range of expertise in an area that I wasn't going to be able to work in um, and just fortune, I was extremely fortunate to, to find myself here at AJA. Um, where I have mostly been working on environmental justice um, for communities impacted by coal. So the other thing about me, I suppose, that's relevant to my work is that I grew up in an area, uh, I grew up in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, um, where 80 something percent of Victoria's electricity is still generated. So huge open cut coal mines, uh, huge coal fired power stations, um, and a whole range of um, environmental and climate justice issues um, there. So 
working with the community um, in the Latrobe Valley and in other areas such as the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales, the Central Coast, and sometimes up in Gladstone and Queensland, helping the communities up there to utilise the law in order to protect their health, mostly from the type of toxic emissions from coal-fired power stations that are not just carbon related. So basically everything else, um, whether that's toxic um, air pollution or increasingly we've been turning our minds to coal ash, so the post-combustion product of burning coal and what and the impact that, that has on community environmental health. So a um, bit of a long winding journey to get here, um, but here I am. And um, it's so great to see so many law students really interested in this space. It's a very dynamic area and um, very challenging, but really rewarding. Awesome. Thank you very much, Pranya. That was very interesting, especially the way that your kind of upbringing has now, where you grew up, has influenced a part of your career. It's really interesting. Um, Michelle, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, I wonder if Keely would like to go first. I feel like I'm the oldest kid on the block, so I'll go last. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Keely, do you want to go first? Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. Um, so thank you for that warm introduction. It's a real honour to be with all of you today, panellists and all of the um, participants who've joined this event. Um, really delighted to be a part of it. So, yeah, um, I um, grew up in a rural area and um, my father is a lawyer uh, as well. And so he was doing RSPCA prosecutions when I was a child and I became aware of the work that he was doing. And I think from a very early age, I saw the law as a vehicle for change. Um, and it's certainly not something that can be relied upon on its own, but um, in my experience and from what I've learned, it can be a powerful vehicle for change. Um, so I, um, I'm an Aboriginal woman and I went and studied law at the University of Wollongong. Um, after I graduated, I did some human rights work and then I um, started working at Greenpeace International in Amsterdam in an internship and immediately was put on to working on climate litigation. Um, and I haven't stopped working on it since then. I see it as the most pressing issue that we face. Um, I mean, obviously we've got an immense challenge right now from this pandemic, but um, I see climate, the climate crisis as being um, in the long term, a, a bigger problem that we face. And I do firmly believe that lawyers can play an important role in addressing not only climate change and doing something about it, but also um, highlighting climate justice, which I know we're going to talk in more detail about, but really taking a climate justice approach both in um, litigation and in our advocacy. So um, I'm the executive officer of the Climate Justice Program and we're a very small NGO that works with lawyers around the world um, on climate litigation and supporting climate litigation. Um, we, uh, I think one of the myths that we came up against quite early in the piece was this idea that since we're all responsible for climate change, then nobody is responsible. Um, so we commissioned research that was released in 2013 called the Carbon Majors Research, which if you haven't looked into it, I said I, I you know, recommend everyone have a look at it. Um, and our the initial research, which we commissioned, found that it was just 60, um, sorry, there was just 90 uh, fossil fuel producers, so oil, coal and gas producers, that were responsible for around two-thirds of industrial carbon emissions. So that's all of humanity's carbon emissions since the Industrial Revolution. We found it was just 90 of these producers who we could trace emission carbon emissions back to um, and that was a really a really um, important piece of research that was released it's since been updated and um, the research shows even uh, an even higher percentage of responsibility for the carbon majors um, and as a result of that research and um, a lot of work being done around the world there is litigation targeting these corporations on the basis that they are not only responsible um, for the climate crisis to a far greater degree than anybody else, um, but also that they have undermined the public's understanding and they've influenced and interfered with the climate negotiations and action taken by national governments. Um, so this is something that 
I'm really passionate about and um, you know, I'm looking forward to talking in more detail, but that's, that's part of what um, I've been doing with my legal career to date. Um, and obviously we've got a lot more to do because we haven't managed to stop this climate crisis or bring, bring justice. So. Awesome. Thank you very much. And Michelle, when you're ready. Thank you very much. Um, I've just turned my mute off. If you don't mind, I might, I'm really visual. I'm just going to quickly show you um, the AILA website so that um, people can see as I talk briefly about my background. Um, for anyone who knows about the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, um, myself and a couple of other lawyer colleagues founded AILA uh, sort of 2011 and then incorporated it in 2012. And I'll talk a bit later more about Earth Laws and how it fits in. But I guess I just wanted to show you some pretty pictures while I talk. Um, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, I always think of as the mothership for a bunch of initiatives that we work in. Um, and I'll mention at the end how my legal degree has brought me into such a multidisciplinary space. Um, we work, um, we're interested in rights of nature, but we're not zealots. We're interested in rights of nature insofar as it can push the legal system to acknowledge human impact and to challenge power structures. But we've also got, um, we auspiced the New Economy Network Australia, um, which is another awesome, awesome network. I'm just trying to get there. New Economy Network Australia, if anyone's heard of it, it's a burgeoning network of individuals and organisations who are tackling head on the kind of dominant paradigm of what an economy looks like so that we can join up the dots of all the incredible human beings and activities around Australia that are looking at climate change responses, but also broader environmental and social justice and economic justice. And another initiative is Future Dreaming Australia, um, which I'm really so thrilled about. Um, and I'll talk a bit about it in a minute when I remind myself of my history through climate change work, but also with um, my uh, Indigenous friends and family and colleagues. So that's some of the organisations that we're connected to. AILA has auspiced Focus on Economy um, and this particular partnerships arrangement with Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to help um, share knowledge and develop projects that help us all care for country and atmosphere and sea um, on this beautiful, beautiful continent. In terms of me, myself and I, um, I'm an old girl. I turned 50 this year. And as someone who got hit with cancer at 45 and should have been dead in four months, I am thrilled to be turning 50 and getting older. It is a privilege that not many get to enjoy. Um, I grew up out in the bush in central western Queensland, a kid um, in Bar Calden. I went down to ANU and did law, um, and maybe some students can relate to this. I never had a clue what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I knew I cared about plants and animals. I was born with it in my DNA, had beautiful parents and family who loved the bush, um, and from an Irish Catholic upbringing, social justice, and from all my Aboriginal mates, um, and my very first, uh, the great love of my life, who was a young Aboriginal man. I got indoctrinated into First Nations ways pretty early on, and I uh, have deep, deep, deep respect and love for the first peoples and the first cultures and the first laws of this gorgeous country. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention about me is in addition to law and politics, I've done a PhD in law and I looked at regulating consumption, which is a critical issue because climate issues are just another symptom of industrial society's overuse of beautiful planet Earth. Um, and being an old girl, I have the great tragedy of a long decades worth of work seeing situation deteriorate and the one story I'll share is in 1995 I was really privileged at the age of 25 to move from the Federal Environment Protection Agency into Australia's first dedicated agency addressing climate change. In 1995 the New South Wales government set up a sustainable energy development authority. There were 20 of us as startups and we built what I still consider today an optimal strategy for addressing carbon emissions. We had everything down to programmatic evaluation, down to uh, tons saved uh, per dollar uh, spent. Um, it was excellent. And I can tell you everything that Keely talked about, the corporate conspiracy to silence discussion about climate change, to create misinformation. I've had the unfortunate privilege of being old enough and working long enough on this stuff to watch it all happen. So in the days that CETA was set up, have a, have a think about this for a moment. We were looking at mitigation-only strategies. The concept of climate change adaptation hadn't actually been developed yet. The New South Wales government was investing in really sensible policies, 
industry were open. We were out selling these ideas to industry groups. They were, they were going, what, what's climate change? Is it like the ozone layer hole? What is it? We would explain, they would understand, they were starting to act. And then as um, Naomi Oreskes in Merchants of Doubt and many others have written about, um, the corporations got a whiff of their own demise and rather than choose to modify their actions and change their business model, they continued to pump fossil fuels and lies. So it's um, 95 to 2000, Cedar did great stuff. And then we saw the end of the 90s really start to bring in phenomenal corporate control of um, information around climate change and create the fragmented view that a lot of people have today when the science is really simple. So that's, um, that's all I wanted to say as terms of introduction. Um, over to you. Awesome. Thank you, Michelle. That was a really interesting timeline. When you think about it, it's really not that long. Um, so I guess next we'd like to hear just a little bit um, from Keely as the director of the Climate Justice Program. Um, if you could just kind of outline for us what climate justice means and how it differs from other modes of discourse around climate change. That would be awesome. Um, so I think climate justice means different things to different people and obviously within a legal framework justice has quite a specific meaning um, but the climate justice movement is a broad social justice movement that looks at the climate crisis, who's responsible for it, who's being impacted, who's vulnerable. Um, just one moment. <laughs> Sorry I've got young children here um, and some of those issues I was talking about before about cor corporate responsibility and corporate influence they are aspects of climate justice we also find that um, obviously the people who are most vulnerable and least able to adapt or develop resilience are the people who have generally contributed the least to the problem um, of cl the climate crisis so that also is an aspect of climate justice um, the the initiative of a just, trans, just transition for coal workers and others who are working in industries that, um, you know, where people are going to lose their jobs and livelihoods potentially, um, that's also an aspect of climate justice. Um, and obviously there's also the intergenerational aspect of it, which is that younger people and um, children and, and people who are not born yet are going to be experiencing the climate crisis to a much greater extent than older generations. Um, so I think climate justice is really multifaceted and it's not something that I even feel that it can be, um, you know, there's, there's no one simple definition because it's um, a concept that people rally around and there's this um, very broad movement and it's certainly not a concept that's purely um, contained within that legal idea. Um, so they're, they're some of my, my thoughts and I think um, it also goes even broader than just our ideas around humanity and justice but goes further to, you know, what, what does um, climate justice mean when we look at animals and wild animals and nature and Mother Earth because um, climate change is impacting all of them as well. Uh, so we have to really broaden our understanding of justice and the way that we look at the way, you know, the way that industrial society is basically impacting the planet and every living being upon the planet. Um, so they're my, they're my thoughts on climate justice. Awesome. Thank you. That was a very good overview. Um, uh, next up, we would like, and this is open to all of you, anyone who would like to um, speak on this. Um, how does the climate justice framework and the framework of your respective organisations um, fit in with Indigenous rights and sovereignty? And what does it mean to each of you uh, to have an Indigenous first perspective on climate justice? Does anyone want to volunteer to speak on that first? Michelle? Perhaps Keely can go first. Keely? And then, then I'm happy to think. But I think that's appropriate. And if you're juggling children, power to your sister. Don't apologise. It's a beautiful <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, obviously, I'm, I'm an Aboriginal woman and I think within my organisation, we think it's really important that 
um, First Nations people around the world have got a very, you know, given a voice and given the um, a platform really to talk, to speak up and talk about um, perspectives from an Indigenous point of view. Um, and, you know, part of the difficulty with climate change is it is, it is this enormous issue, but I think as Michelle was um, highlighting when, when she was speaking is that it is one part of a broader problem of the way that um, this, the planet has been and societies, Indigenous people have been colonised and that's the dominant frame, this exploitation and economy-based and a capitalist-based way of interacting with each other and the world around us. Um, and so when we, the, most of the solutions to climate change are based upon still business as usual and they don't hold the corporations to account. That's certainly not something that happens. Carbon trading and a lot of the financial mechanisms that have been developed or, you know, governments have tried to develop are still not really going to the heart of the issue. And um, even a lot of NGOs have been caught with not, um, fully integrating a climate justice or an Indigenous first perspective. An example of that is um, we we need to address deforestation, right? And deforestation is a massive part of the climate crisis. Um, but within uh, places around the world, including in um, Africa, Indigenous people are being displaced and forcibly removed from their traditional lands in order to create a national park to offset carbon and to create, um, you know, a carbon climate solution. But uh, removing people who are Indigenous to the land and have been there for generations and are living um, in balance with the land is not, is not in that big picture. It's not going to work and it's also not in alignment with, um, with justice or respecting human rights. So it's a really complex and, um, you know, in some ways people would say, well, you're making it too difficult. We can just look at the maths of it and say, this is how much our emissions are. This is the pathway we need to take to reduce our emissions. And then we need to draw down emissions by whatever amount. Let's use these um, mathematical models that will, um, you know, they will address that. So it could be an argument saying, we're well, making it too difficult by worrying about human rights. But we also come back to this um, question of not only historical responsibility, but also what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to be living in this really mechanical um, perspective of the planet and, um, uh, and I suppose, a civilization that doesn't put value upon um, community and, and individual rights um, that Indigenous people have. So th they're some of my thoughts. Um, and I think that any anybody who's working in this space really needs to look at, um, obviously, Indigenous perspectives. Um, but at the heart of it really is about the fact that we see Mother Earth as being something mechanical, um, something that can be exploited, rather than seeing mother earth as being a living being that we're a part of so there's also a, a paradigm shift that's not currently being addressed through the conventional approach to climate change awesome. oh, that's fantastic sorry can i'll jump in and just yeah. quickly add um i think keely has covered a lot of the things that are really important to ayla um certainly in all of the work we do and i'll talk later i know that there's a particular question about earth laws but the starting point really is our relationship with the living world. Right now, industrial society's relationship with the living world is one of abuse. And if we want to change that, we have to rearrange the way Westerners and industrial societies think and act. And the way to do that, certainly in the view of Thomas Berry and Earth Jurisprudence, is wherever you are on the planet, get to know your local place and start thinking about where you live, what your home is, and care in a real physical, material way with what's going on around you. To do that in Australia, you have to first grapple with colonisation and you have to listen to, learn from um, and take a lead from um, the First Peoples who are not just First Nations peoples like other First Nations peoples in this world. They are one of the oldest continuous cultures on earth. They're constantly pushing their dates back. Why is that significant? Because they have one of the most amazing ancient governance systems that continues today in many, many places. 
that we can learn from. And the work I do with Indigenous Elder Mary Graham, who's one of Australia's leading philosophers and happens to be an amazing Aboriginal philosopher, even as an old girl at 50, she has blown my hair back with the concepts and the notions of how the society lived and worked here, how they patterned and embedded themselves into that living, living, breathing relationship-based culture, law and economy. So a First Nations approach is critical for a colonised nation like Australia, but it's also critical for anyone around the world who needs to unthink and unlearn um, a lot of the rather nasty approaches that we've developed through law, through our professions, um, and taught us that certain behaviours are acceptable. Perhaps not everyone on this call, you're probably very wonderful and aware of these things, but mainstream society, old white men and old white women who are in decision-making roles now, um, screwing up our beautiful planet, those worldviews, they need to learn from systems and cultures that have lived for a very long time, very successfully. So that's just my short bit, but I could rave about that for days. So. <laughs> Maybe another time. Um, thank you. Uh, Bronya, do you want to speak quickly on just um, what a First Nations first approach means at EJA and whether um, that's something that EJA engages with? Certainly. So we, um, I mean, my space is, is a bit different. We, you know, we take on clients and we, um, we work on the matters that the clients bring to us. We do work with quite a few Indigenous groups, though, mostly throughout Victoria. So my colleague, um, Dr. Bruce Lindsay, has been um, working with Mildred and the Maui, uh, Murray Lower Darling Indigenous Network um, trying to obtain and secure cultural flows of water um, for the mob up there. Um, and just the, um, the sheer, like from a, from a really practical perspective, the sheer difficulty in ensuring, you know, where traditional, um, traditional owner rights exist with cultural flows for water, for instance, how you actually maintain, how you actually secure them when the legal system is, is definitely geared towards the, the water rights of irrigators or the water rights of, of, of whoever else. And um, trying to help the legal system understand that actually, you know, those cultural flows of water, for instance, are just as important um, as any other cultural, as, as any other, you know, access to water should be. So, you know, the law has such a long way to go when it comes to recognising um, rights such as those and making sure that they're implemented and secured well into the future. Um, I mean, where I come from too, where, when I grew up, um, the, the huge amount of deforestation in Gippsland region generally, um, the old growth mountain ash forest that's been torn down over however, since colonisation, um, the wetlands that were drained to make way for um, for mines and to access the coal in order to burn it. Um, when it comes to seeking repatriation for that type of stuff and getting, um, getting environmental justice and securing justice for traditional owner groups um, in the Latrobe Valley region and in Gippsland is just, I mean, that's, that's still a lot of where have been working with some groups of the Gunai Kurnai down there to try and start to think about what that looks like. Um, and again, in the context too of mine rehabilitation, which is going on in Latrobe Valley at the moment with the regional um, rehabilitation strategy being developed, what does a, if you take, um, the Gunai Kurnai rights as front and centre to what that rehabilitation program should look like. How do we make sure that our government agencies and our, um, our politicians embed that in the legal system to make sure that they're addressed in the way that they ought to be? Um, again, is, a, is an ongoing process um, that's extremely complicated, but the work is, is, is being done and being thought about, um, which hopefully answers your question. <laughs> oh, it does. Thank you very much. Um, Bronya, I'm going to keep you um, going. I was just wondering whether you could kind of back onto um, the general idea of the law as a vehicle for change. Mm -hmm. um, I guess all of us kind of have ideas of what that looks like, but could you kind of outline for me the main kind of legal approaches um, that you've seen or witnessed or learnt about um, to combat climate change, so the main ways in which the law can act as a vehicle for change in the realm of climate change? 
Certainly. So it's, there's so many different ways you can potentially approach it. There is, um, and it also depends on um, what you consider environmental law and how you imagine environmental law can actually work. So um, one of the things that's been very successful in, in recent times is the um, looking at it from a financial perspective and using the Corporations Act um, to um, make directors, you know, to highlight the director duties around um, disclosure of climate risks to shareholders and things like that. Um, and looking at it from a financial perspective and a, a director's um, fiduciary duties perspective has been very interesting and quite successful. Um, I mean, there's other approaches too, like looking at it from a torts law perspective and around duty of care and potentially negligence. Um, there's a lot of good lawyers throughout Australia who've been turned, who've turned their minds to that, you know, obviously since the agenda case um, from a few years ago that was really successful in Holland. Um, I mean, our legal system is quite different to that, but there's still a lot of lawyers working, um, you, looking at the ways that you can utilise tort law, mostly around a duty of care and around negligence to ensure that, you know, to try and do something. Um, I do a lot of work in the pollution space. So as I was saying before, um, utilizing things you know like environment protection acts or the equivalents and saying well maybe carbon is a is a waste in the way that we consider landfill or the way that we consider other emissions such as um other you know pm 2.5 or other deadly air toxins you know if we can regulate greenhouse gas emissions through the licensing system um you know it, through that system you know maybe that's a way to combat it as well um and then there's just you know all the the really hard work that's done in in the law reform space to say well you should you know decision makers and should be thinking about embedding climate and climate decisions in a whole suite of um legislative frameworks um which again there's a lot of really good lawyers and academics doing that work in australia trying to make sure that that is front and center of a decision making process and there's been some real successes in that area as well. So it's it's absolutely um, multi-dimensional. There's a whole range of ways that you can approach it, um, in, and in some ways depends on your your own creativity. <laughs> to be honest, it's like if you how can you consider a piece of legislation or uh, tailor that? I mean, our job as lawyers is is around statutory interpretation a lot of the time, um, and framing things in a particular way and in a in a, and making strong arguments for how something ought to be considered. Um, so how do we how do we use that creativity and how do we bring that to the law to convince um, a judge to to take those arguments on on board? Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Um, I feel like when people talk about the role of the law um, in combating climate change, you don't necessarily think of all the different areas of law that can be involved, like torts law is not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind, but um, it's kind of the flexibility of those and adaptability of those areas of law. It's really interesting. Um, I'm going to move a little bit in a different direction uh, because we would love to hear about earth laws. So, uh, Michelle, this is a large area of what you do. Um, do you want to give us kind of an overview of what earth laws is and how it's distinct from other areas of environmental law? Um, and yeah, what role you see earth laws or earth jurisprudence having in the future? Thank you. And <clears throat> excuse me, given the time availability, um, my comments will be kind of very big picture overview. So if you're interested, please do visit our website or jump on the mailing list or shoot me an email. But look, in a nutshell, the argument goes like this. The Western legal system is hundreds of years old, hundreds and hundreds of years old. Things like private property rights, uh, property law, the, um, the evolution of um, market-based systems after industrial revolution, they're hundreds of years old. When you think about traditional environmental law from a Western law point of view, a lot of it popped up in the 1970s after we um, sent a few men to the moon and we looked back and discovered the earth. Um, so modern traditional environmental law is actually quite young when you think about Western or Aussie legal systems. The critique about current environmental law from a lot of folks who, who um, focus more on an earth-centered worldview is that uh, Western society's legal system is still human-centered and even environmental laws are still aimed at legalizing harm to the environment, basically working out how much harm can we do that fits with us as humans 
that we can fix up later. I mean, it's like, again, this is very simplified. Um, the problem with that is the situation we find ourselves in today. Climate change, deforestation, biodiversity loss, all of these things are, as I said before, um, because industrial societies are letting their people, letting their systems, letting the elite use too much, pollute too much and destroy everything. So the current situation for existing laws is one of small piecemeal successes and very, very important steps. And I love the EDOs. I was the chair of the EDO Queensland for seven years. Um, so I'm not, I'm not in any way critiquing the work of incredible lawyers right now in the system today. But Earth Laws suggests, and some of this work comes from the theories of a cool dude called Thomas Berry and the idea of Earth jurisprudence, but all of it borrows from First Nations worldviews around the world and learns from that wisdom, which is humans are simply part of nature. We are one of many millions and billions of species. We have no right to destroy the rest of the planet. We have no moral right to eat up the earth and kill everything, but also it's suicide because we're killing the very system we rely on. So earth laws, earth jurisprudence, earth-centered everything, as I call it, is actually about building on the great progress we've made under environmental law, but recognizing the flawed parameters in it and recognizing that we have to do more and in fact do less. Um, we have to rein in human activities. I would actually suggest that earth laws in a simple way for young lawyers to think about is, it's not about really regulating the environment. It's about regulating human behavior, restoring some level of discipline to a culture that knows no limits, to embracing the current scientific knowledge we know about Earth system science, planetary boundaries, ecological limits, and making better, more rational choices, as well as developing a deeper love for place and an actual understanding of what the hell is going on. Because um, one thing I love about Thomas Berry's work is this critique of most of us living in cities, living inside buildings, spending our time from car to air conditioned place. We don't touch the soil. We don't look at the plants and animals. We've got no idea what healthy places look like. We don't know how to care for it. Aboriginal people would walk around their place, look after country, uh, tend animals, tend to agriculture, uh, manage systems, restore balance, and ensure that whatever was taken was regenerated. So Earth Wars is about, on the one hand, rethinking our relationship with the living world, but it's also about some very hardcore legal responses to that. And the thing I love is it's not just about law. It's, it's the whole interaction of how industrial societies have created legal, economic, educational belief systems, all of which are not helping to regenerate the living world. And that's what we need to do. So there's a ton more on this area. It's really cool. But I hope that that gives a bit of an overview. Yeah, definitely. That was awesome. Thank you. And thank you for being brief as well. Um, uh, on Earth Laws, Keely, I know that you've done some research into kind of more specifically within Earth Laws, um, the potential for Mother Earth to have standing in a legal context. Um, and that's something we would love to hear you speak about, particularly potentially in um, the context of our Great Barrier Reef and whether that's an option um, in the future. Okay, um, thank you. So um, this comes back to obviously some of the things I was saying before about seeing Mother Earth as being alive. Um, and I think, as I was saying earlier, you know, part of the difficulty we face with um, the conventional way of thinking about climate change is this mechanical view of the Earth. And I mean, I remember um, just last year when I was preparing to do this presentation, which I gave um, last year at the, an event Ayala um, organised in Melbourne, um, I met with um, an academic at my university and um, he's in quite a high position. I was talking to him about climate change and he said, oh, look, there's, you know, you don't need to be concerned about it because we can put um, a giant umbrella into the sky and we'll, we'll be able to block the Earth's um, block the earth from the sun's heating um and uh, and also it could be lots of little umbrellas and at first i thought he was joking but then i realized he was actually completely serious um and afterwards i i did some research and so this is actually something that nasa is looking at and i mean it's part of a suite of geoengineering solutions um 
to the climate crisis. And again, that seeing as the earth is, is something that we can control and that we can manage and that we can continue to um, colonise and exploit. So um, what I'm suggesting and that um, I think, you know, is consistent with Indigenous peoples around the world is that we completely change the way that we look at the earth and instead we recognise her as being a living being um, who is um, has self-regulated the earth's climate um, for as long as there has been life on this planet and that the that life itself is what creates the conditions for life so with what michelle was saying about connecting to country and connecting to place it is through the care of country and place around us whether you're aboriginal or not um, it's the care of the place that you're at and the health of ecosystems on the entire planet that um, will have will determine whether or not mother earth is able to continue to self-regulate it's not something that we can design or control we actually need to be um, contributing to and allowing um, mother earth to take that right back which is obviously hers and uh, whether it is possible under the um, you know the current dominant legal system to actually have um, Mother Earth standing recognised is a different question. I'm not going to go through that. Um, and the Great Barrier Reef, um, I'm not I'm not going to speak on them in great depth, but the Great Barrier Reef um, and coral reefs around the world they're all part of Mother Earth and. You know, the forests are her lungs, um, the rivers are her, like her lifeblood and the coral reefs are another type of organ within her, her bodily system. Um, and when we see the Great Barrier Reef and, and other aspects of Earth in this different light, and we can see that everything matters. It's not just a matter of um, fossil fuels. I think fossil fuels are a huge part of it, but it's actually looking at everything. So, for example, um, uh, where I... I mean, you're in country and we have um, whale dreaming ceremonies to help the whales on their, their journey um, up and down the coast. And, you know, you wouldn't think that that has anything to do with climate change, but actually it does. Um, and that's because everything has a role within the climate and system or the, or the health of Mother Earth. And science is obviously trying to catch up with some of these aspects of traditional knowledge. Um, I think it was just last year that there was some research that found that whales actually do play a really vital role in the climate system and they do that through what they consume and the carbon they consume and then when they die they sink to the bottom of the ocean and they sequester carbon um, at a about you know at a, a very high level um, but then they also transfer nutrients from the antarctic to the warmer regions which then influences the uptake of carbon um, at the planetary levels so you know, we think we need to actually completely change the way we um, we think about the world. And um, I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm suggesting that we really should be um, putting aside that colonisation frame of mind and instead be seeing Mother Earth as a living being who should have standing as the first citizen. Um, she's the first citizen in our, in our world. Awesome. Thank you very much, Kelly. Um, we are going to go through a few questions that we have from the audience. Um, if other audience members would like to submit questions, uh, just do so through the chat function. Um, but we've got a few that um, were submitted prior to the commencement of the panel. So um, an interesting one, and this is open to any of our panellists. Um, what do you think about the effect that coronavirus will have? Um, will it lead to a deeper understanding of the ties that bind us all on a global scale and therefore help our chances of slowing the climate crisis? Or alternatively, does it have potential to suck the energy out of public action and public policy as our economy declines? Anyone like to answer that? I'll jump in because we've been talking about this an awful lot within the New Economy Network and also within AILA. Um, I think the answer is yes and yes. Um, I think on the one hand, we're seeing amazing people and all of the community sector, um, First Nations sector, um, social justice, environmental to a point, but everyone is talking about how do we help each other through this? And 
certainly even if you just look at an average progressive person's Facebook or Twitter feed, you're seeing huge debates about the kinds of things we can do to continue to build community solidarity and a lot of fantastic cartoons showing why is capitalism always being rescued by socialism? You know, the very systems and institutions that are meant to help us as a collective force are bailing everybody out now. Like we're basically setting up a universal basic income through increasing Centrelink payments. We're looking at all these other ways to support each other. That's terrific. And I actually believe it's generated enough debate that it will continue to be useful after Corona passes. But at the same time, um, stopping people from being able to go out, protest, uh, celebrate, do a whole bunch of advocacy work together will have an impact. And also there's the threat that a lot of us are starting to put our heads around, which is what Naomi Klein talks about, um, disaster capitalism. When something bad happens, the people who are rich, switched on, full of resources and ready to go, can take advantage of that. We saw it after the massive tsunami years ago across Asia when it was being rebuilt. A lot of local communities got left out of that and big hotels and corps moved in. We see it all the time around climate change. We see it with the alleged conspiracy around Cambridge Analytica and other processes that dominated the breakup of the UK from, from uh, the EU. We see it through the Trump strategies. So I think there's some very serious threats um, and perhaps Bronya and others can speak to this more directly, but we've certainly seen a lot of society being paused at the moment but environmental planning and law decisions are not being paused. They are still going on. I was talking to EDO Queensland folks today um, and they just came out of phone calls, you know, with courts trying to grapple with an online system, people trying to challenge unwanted developments. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities, but as always, um, there's also potential threats and there's a whole bunch of other weird shit going on around the world with the tightening up of government control of civil rights. So, but I wonder what others would have to say. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Michelle. Um, Ronit, did you want to speak on that? Yes, um, as Michelle says, that's absolutely happening at the moment. There's no, um, there's no pause on the decision-making process and there's an absolute delay um, on our ability to get into the courts or into tribunals at the moment. Um, just yesterday, actually, I received orders from VCAT for a matter that I'm running there saying um, it's been stayed indefinitely um, until, you know, uh, we can work out how to go about conducting the proceedings um, in a virtual format. And I certainly have colleagues who have been grappling with the same thing, whether they're appearing virtually in court or um, having to deal with what's happening with the legal system, with the court system and just being able to make those physical appearances at the moment. Um, and of course, there's just an absolute saturation at the moment of um, COVID-19 in the media um, and the impact that's having on um, on our uh, on the ability for information about those decision making processes to come through, um, and I mean this was happening during the bushfires as well. So I don't know if folks are aware of um, the amazing work of two of my colleagues who do all of our forestry litigation in Victoria. But um, whilst the bushfires were still raging, Vic Forest, who is the um, government agency that does all the logging here in Victoria. Um, was still going into coops and attempting to log them. So like just even though the fires weren't even out yet or under control. Um, so a lot of those threatened species that were otherwise fleeing from the bushfires into these state owned coops um, were being further threatened or their habitats being further threatened um, by the, the log, the, the government owned logging agency who was trying to trying to log at the same time. Um, then, I mean, again, on the forestry stuff, you know, the, the decisions about the, to extend the regional forest agreements came out late last night. We're not going to be able to act, actually scrutinise those until the federal parliament resits in August. That's a very long time for folks that were working in this space to not have a clue about what's going on there. Um, and then on the 17th of March, the, um, the moratorium on gas, uh, onshore gas extraction was lifted in Victoria. And the Daniel Andrews announced very quietly um, the whilst we're still waiting for um, the ban on fracking to be written into our constitution um, you know this moratorium that we've had for a really long time now has just been lifted and a whole lot of communities who've worked in this space for a really long time um, are now plunged into uncertainty about what that means for um, for those areas so um, I mean, there's there's a lot of examples at the moment, and there's a, you know, the, there's those decisions aren't going, you know, they're still being made, um, but they're being they're not as they're not 
potentially not going to be um, scrutinized in the way that we might otherwise scrutinize. And because of course, we're all worried about our health um, and what, what the pandemic means um, for our lives. But there is, there's still a huge role, I think, um, and, and an appetite, I think, in the community as well to continue to shine that spotlight on those decisions that are being made in the meantime and what we can be doing about them to make sure that that accountability is still maintained for those decision makers. Absolutely. That was great. Thank you, Vronya. Um, I think the, that that's something that I hadn't thought about until we had talked about it, um, how much is going on in Australia in the environmental sector that we're just completely distracted from um, at the moment because of the media saturation and again with the bushfires. So that was awesome. Thank you, Bronya. Um, Keely, did you have anything you wanted to add to that or we can move on up to you? Um, so I agree with everything that's been said, but one thing I wanted to add is that um, this, this, this pandemic um, is also giving us some really powerful lessons about resilience and the privilege that um, people in the dominant um, economies have. So within Australia, the US, the UK, um, there is obviously a much higher level of resilience and wealth, which means that people have the actual privilege to say, well, yes, I will be staying at home and we have a safe uh, a social security network that there's, you know, a lot of debate around the level and government is being scrut scrutinised, although we are seeing the erosion of human rights and civil liberties, which is very concerning. But within developing countries, um, I've got colleagues in Indonesia, for example, there is no capacity to adapt to or be resilient in the face of the COVID-19 um, pandemic because they just simply don't have access to, um, to soap, to running water, to um, supermarkets where you can or have deliveries and so forth. Um, but if the privilege of being able to stay home and to be able to work from home like we all are right now um, or study from home. Um, this is all something that really comes from the immense level of wealth that we have that has been obtained through generations of exploiting the earth and also exploiting people in, um, and you know, exploiting people from developing countries who right now don't have the capacity to adapt at any level. So when we're looking at climate impacts and climate justice, um, I think that we already are seeing the impacts of climate change, but this is a taster of how much worse it's going to be for people who are in these countries where there's virtually no ability to adapt. Um, so that, that's some of the concerns uh, I think that I have, and I hope that um, the social justice movement, climate justice movement really, you know, highlights that and um, that it does mean that once we are able to get back up on our feet and um, the work that we are still able to do, um, that we can we can stop the climate crisis and bring climate justice. Great points. Awesome. That was awesome. Thank you, Keely. Um, changing tack a little bit, we have had a couple of questions about, um, as law students, kind of what path um, we can take to engage in a career in environmental law, climate justice, earth law. Um, and... Yeah, so what kind of advice you would have for law students looking to get engaged in climate justice? Um, well, we have a volunteering and an internship program in Victoria. Um, so I'd encourage you to jump on our website and, um, and have a look at getting involved there. Um, I mean, go and volunteer with an org. Like most of you will be under 30, go and volunteer with AYCC and SEED. Um, they do amazing work in the climate space um, and climate justice space, um, working on some really, really important matters at the moment, um, particularly in the Northern Territory around fracking and the impact that that's going to have um, on homelands up there. Um, 
a lot of volunteers that we have, you know, have come through AYCC. So I mean, you get to cut your teeth on some campaigning and activist experience, which is, you know, quite often, um, at least public interest, environmental legal practices are looking for a demonstrated, a, a demonstrated commitment to the environment um, in some kind of way. And, and volunteering with a group like AYCC and SEED um, is a really good way to get yourself involved in those networks and see how it all works. Um, I've been a member of ALA since I was a law student, so I'll absolutely give ALA a plug in the work that, um, that Michelle does. Um, you know, if, if the, the things that I learned as a law student helped really help to shape my thinking um, around earth laws and how you can utilise that um, as, a, as a lawyer working um, in the system, how can you start to embed those ideas um, into the arguments you're making? How can you put them before a judge um, how can you, you know, really put those things on the table to, to start to build a precedent and to start to get um, the legal system thinking about it in a way that's going to um, move that forward as well. Um, you know, maybe you want to get involved in XR, maybe you want to get involved with Friends of the Earth, maybe you want to do some, you know, things like that. There's a whole range of things that you can do. Um, and really, I think... Um, think critically about the law as you're learning it and how you can start to implement um, things like earth laws and earth law jurisprudence into the way that you approach the legal system. And that's something that I definitely had that's been, that has really shaped the way that I approach the law um, as a practicing lawyer um, to keep me motivated to, to get those changes that I would like to see happening that I intend to, see, you know, I intend to achieve in, as part of my career. Mm. That's awesome. I'll just be very quick because um, I guess what I would suggest is when I was in my 20s, I had no clue what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I tried lots of things and it turned out to be the best thing I did. I had a journey through uh, working in government, a bit of work in private practice. I volunteered everywhere. Um, I worked with lots of different environmental groups for nothing. Um, I volunteered for a very, very long time with um, a lot of different Aboriginal groups um, that I've stayed in touch with forever. Um, and Diverse experience, really great problem-solving skills um, are very, very important. Your future um, is going to look very different to, to my past. And what we need are people who, number one, actually understand the current legal system really well. Be the best law student and the best lawyer you can be. Then, exactly as Bronya said, get these other ideas invested into your brain so that you can then push the boundaries if you work in law practice. Um, be a philosopher, work in policy, whatever you do, we need people to think really cool ideas and actually do something about it. There's a lot of practical work you can do um, and don't just limit yourself to the law. I know it's busy, but do be, a, be good at understanding and, and, and analysing and critiquing the problems, build solutions and, if possible, dabble with some multidisciplinarity because it's only when you're outside the ridiculousness of the Western legal system do you actually see how this social construct is outdated and we need to do different things to be good earthlings? So, yeah. Thank you. What was that, Michelle? <laughs> I was just saying, you're on mute. Oh, <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you very much, Michelle. And I think we will wrap up now. So I will say thank you very much to all of our speakers, Bronya, Michelle and Keely. That was a really informative and very entertaining discussion. Um, and we're very grateful to have had you all here and honoured. So thank you very much. Um, normally at these kind of events, when they're run in real life, we would give you a small token of our thanks. But instead, we were thinking of... Um, a small donation to actually what you just mentioned before, Michelle, Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. Um, so as long as all of you are happy with that, that's what we're Absolutely. Doing. And Bronya mentioned it. Oh, sorry, Bronya. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I um, I just, I bought uh, for Christmas this year, bought everybody a um, donation to Seed. Everybody on oh. you. Absolutely. Throw all your money their way. Yep. They do. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Um, and so someone, Laura, has mentioned in the chat, um, does anyone have any reading recommendations of the sub, on the subject of environmental energy and resources or climate change law, um, as we may all have some extra time for self-education? 
Um, so we would love to put together kind of an email with just links to the organizations of all of our speakers um, so that you can all find out more about their organizations and how to potentially get involved and volunteer at those organizations. Um, so if people do have readings of note that they have enjoyed, uh, we would love for you to send them, our speakers and our participants, so we can put together a follow-up um, email with some more information. Um, the other thing I just wanted to quickly mention is that the AYCC, who Bronya also was speaking on, um, are hosting tonight's uh, welcome night to the AYCC. So if anyone is online, of course, um, if anyone was looking to get involved in Indigenous activism, um, that I'm sorry, environmental activism, um, that is definitely a way that you could get involved tonight. It's 7 p.m in Melbourne time. Um, so I'll just send a link quickly into the chat, but we'll also put that in the email. Um, Can I just mention one thing, and I'm sorry I should have, shouldn't interrupt you, but um, Keely, we have the Australian Centre for the Rights of Nature. The website is rightsofnature.org. And about a year or two ago, we developed model laws to recognise the Great Barrier Reef as a living being. Um, we're not campaigners, we're creators of new ideas and interesting things, but we'd love to band with you to revive that discussion because we've got these beautiful laws which we worked on for months with um, some international colleagues and uh, would recommend that website to anyone who's interested in specifically rights of nature, which is, as I said, an area uh, that we work in, but, you know, one of many. Anyway, just wanted to mention that. No, awesome. Yeah. Um, there's something, Michelle, that you can send to me and we can put in the email um, for people sure. to read up. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. And thank you for hosting us. That was fun. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.